This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. This week, the news cycle moved from the election to Cheltenham, but never absent were the constant references to the odds at which a politician or a horse might win their race. As betting rises from side street bookies to online apps, so has the value of the industry, the constant media mentions, and most sadly of all, the scale of the gambling. How has an industry which profits entirely from the losses of its customers managed to avoid modern regulation or even approbation by mainstream society? Gambling, the last socially acceptable vice. In studio, Declan Lynch is a columnist with the Sunday Independent and author of Free Money. Willie Collins is an addiction specialist currently working with Wharton House. On the line is Sharon Burns, chairperson of the Irish Bookmakers Association and also Oisin McConville, the former Armagh footballer um, who's had problems with gambling and is now actually a gambling counsellor. Um, Oisin, was there a moment when you think that you moved from having fun gambling to becoming an addict? Yeah, well, even though I didn't know it at the time, I suppose the first day I placed that, you know, that was me. I fell in love with gambling, started a relationship with gambling at 14 years of age, that relationship that I completely controlled to begin with. Uh, so I decided when I bet, where I bet, and who I bet with, how much I bet. Um, and it soon controlled me. Within three, four years, I was begging, borrowing, stealing, and all we get the money to have that bet. And... Really, you know, again, the vivid images we see on, on television of people who are strung out in drugs and people, some people don't understand, you know, the draw of gambling. And for me, uh, you know, I suppose the best way I can describe it is that, you know, when I was, you know, when you consider me, you know, in relation to, say, a heroin addict, their hit is, is a hit of heroin. My hit was to get a bet on, and I, I've done anything to get that money. So really, for me, it was a, it was a, a, a gradual yet steady progression into, into um, serious compulsive gambling. And what was your lowest point, would you say? Well, there was lots of low points, and there was a lot of, po- lot of points where, uh, and you'll hear this probably from a lot of people in the section, where um, you know, I, there would have been a lot of false dawns where I said to myself, that's it. You know, things are going to change now. It's not going to happen. Yes, within 20 minutes, I could find myself, you know, trying to get money from whatever source I could get it for to get that next bet on. Because the fantasy world that I was living in was that, you know, I felt I was only ever one bet away from sorting out all my problems. When I talk about problems, everybody thinks immediately of financial problems. It wasn't just my financial problems. It was the problems that this was causing me emotionally and the isolation as a result of, you know, uh, you know, thinking about gambling, thinking about my addiction every week and hour. First thing I thought about in the morning, last thing I thought about at night. You know, it was months we go. You know, we we wouldn't sleep because of the fact that not only did you feel you know when you're awake that you had to bet, but also because there was so many people after me at that stage. You know, for money. I mean, I was. You know, every ladder to come in through the door, I would stick in the bin. So I wasn't living in reality. I wasn't living in the same world that everybody else was. And as a result of that, you know, I just my life was absolutely consumed with this addiction. And Oshin, why do you think um, you had that addiction? When I think of the joy and the gift for footballing that you had, and the pleasure you gave to people with such a talent. Why was there some need there then that was being filled by gambling? Well, I suppose one of the things about uh, about about my gambling was that, you know, when I was growing up in a small village in South Armagh, 
I felt really comfortable on a football pitch. And from 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years of age, I was doing things on a football pitch that not a lot of fellas my age were doing. And when I say that, I mean, you know, I was constantly in the field, constantly practicing. didn't matter what age group was there. I was there. 14 years of age, that changed for me. I felt as comfortable in the boogies as I did in the football field. I felt as if I wasn't good enough education academically. Um, and I wanted to throw myself into something, and and that was the one thing that threw myself into. I mean, for alcohol, for me, I suppose, um, you know, when you're trying to perform at the highest level, uh, it's probably a no-no. Obviously, drugs are out, and people always see gambling as that, that, you know, that pastime. Where you know, obviously, it's not gonna. Uh, the first thing is that people feel it's not gonna uh, affect you physically, and that's you know, for a lot of people in sport, that's the most important thing. So that was probably it for me. You know, I, I you know I needed to to uh, throw myself into something and forget about the, you know the world that I was living in because I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy living in that world. And you know, I was I was running around you know a lot of my adolescent life with with a mask on. You know, if I met you in the street, you know, I'd be that happy. I'd pretend I was that happy that I'd almost give you a high five walking in the street. Yet behind that mask, there was a lot of different stuff going on, and I was absolutely. Not only eaten up with you know emotionally, but eaten up by this addiction, and and you know that was I was feeding into that, and it was feeding into me. So how did it end? Well, it ended with a, a rather large bet on uh, um, you know the day before my thirtieth birthday, um, and when I had that bet, it was beaten again. It was a large bet because I wanted to uh, you know sort out all those problems, you know financially try and sort things out. Because again, I was living that fantasy world where I thought. One bet, I'll sort out all the debts, I'll come clean, I'll get help, and I'll move on. Because for the last four years of my gambling, truly, I didn't want to gamble. I just was in addiction and I felt as if I had to. I mean, it was such a relief. You know, when I went playing football, whenever I went training or um, to a match, it was such a relief because I knew for those two or three hours I wouldn't be able to gamble. And that's the way it was for me, you know, towards the end. Uh, you know, I broke down at home. Um, you know, I, I, if you can imagine somebody trying to keep, you know, those plates spinning in the air, and I'd done that for 16 years, and eventually I just thought, you know, I can't do this anymore. And then the whole thing came crashing down. I started to, you know, realize, you know, financially this, the, the situation I was in. If you can imagine, you know, the things that it took for me, okay, so financially bankrupt, emotionally bankrupt, self-respect, self-esteem, integrity, friendships, relationships, family. You know, it strips you of all those things, and 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 it had done that to me. I went uh, at that stage and, and did three months in uh, in Sister Consilios in Galway, and and started to learn a little bit about addiction. Started to work on myself. Started to open up because I'd never opened up. I'd never talked to people. Um, you know, I was very shut off. Yeah, I could hold a conversation with you, but it was always about material things. It was never about emotions or anything. Now, I read that the you used to go into a local bookie's office and at one point they did try to speak to you. They were actually worried about you, but you yeah. avoided them by just simply driving to offices further away. <laughs> now, given, given that kind of strategy that you were able to do and that would be much easier to do even online now, what kind of regulation or oversight do you think could be put in place to protect gamblers? Well, you know what, this is a very, very difficult one. Um, you know, one of the things that that local bookmaker, because he knew me, obviously, um, 
you know, one of the things he said to me was, you know, you could you could have a problem with this, and how right was he? But you know, my reaction to that was to move on to the next movies. And one of the things uh, that bookies have done over the last, I can't think of the company, maybe Gamble Aware or somebody like that. You know, what they've done is they've trained up staff within within shops that if they see problem gambling, that they'd be able to go and say. But that's a very difficult thing for for a young person who's walking behind the counter. That's a very big onus on them. I mean. Given in to do a day's work, why would they want to bring that, you know, that sort of strife on themselves? And I think that's one thing that, you know, that probably isn't going to work. What, the, the thing I see with the betting, betting patterns and the way people gamble now, I think one of the things you can see is that there's a certain pattern of the way people gamble online. That There should be a paper trail, a money trail. It should be very easily recognized, and I think as soon as it is, because the majority of the people that I see now have got into bother to uh, gambling online and uh, you know as I say there's a very clear pattern now and I think you know when that pattern starts to develop that we that we're able to strike on that and there, there is that you know there's obviously you know that traceability factor but there's, all, uh, there's also an onus on bookmakers you know in that situation we can't leave all of this at the door of the bookmaker I, I do understand I do understand that but there's certain aspects like that like that you know, I've heard of families, you know, I know of families who have had a, ga- a house gamble from around them and they don't know anything about it because it is so secretive. And that's the other side of online gambling is that it's so secretive. So especially online, I think, you know, as soon as uh, as that irregular betting pattern comes or somebody's chasing money continuously, that that red flag is raised and raised very, very quickly and, and, and you know, and is brought to the attention of that, of that individual. Okay, Oshin McConville, thanks a million for talking to us this morning. Really appreciate uh, thank it. Thank you. Um, Declan Lynch, you were writing recently about a thing called the Gambling Commission in the UK. This is kind of an mm. oversight body that they have in the UK and they issued a report about Paddy Power and they described the experiences of a couple of customers, one mm. who was an addict and one who was money laundering. Now, just tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, you know, it, it was just one of these cases whereby, which kind of exposes to some extent this re- responsible gambling philosophy, right? Because a, a guy who's clearly in a whole lot of trouble with, I think it was those things, t- they call them uh, fixed odds betting terminals, which are like roulette machines, right? We don't have them in Ireland, uh, oddly enough. But uh, he was he was in terrible, terrible trouble trouble he was lo- losing a lot of money he you know lost jobs was lo- he was just in a disastrous situation uh someone in the shop alerted people higher up to it and they kind of did nothing about it and almost encouraged them to kind of keep taking his money eventually they just you know they, someone in the shop met him one day and his life had been was now completely ruined and the commission took this up and said you know Paddy Power were very much in the wrong here uh, they fi- they find them like two hundred and eighty grand, but it was a kind of a donation, right? Yeah. Which gives you an, an insight into how uh, primitive these things are, right? There is no sanction, really. I mean, it was like out of the goodness of your heart, if you give us two hundred and eighty thousand to charity, right? It's like a you know a fiver in the poor box. So even that in itself gives you some insight of where where we are with this. That for some reason, um, over the last say ten twenty years, that this industry has flown way ahead of regular, bit like the internet itself, right? It's flown miles ahead of governments, regulators, all this kind of thing. And they're just scrambling desperately to try to get a hold of it and, and to, to, to catch up with it. One very simple thing, which uh, I think would um, kind of strike a chord with everyone, is that like when I was a kid, 
betting tax in betting offices was 20%, right? In order to have a bet of a pound, you needed £1.20, right? And you needed actual money in your hand to hand it over a counter, right? Online, you have no tax, none, right? In the old days, on course, you would have no tax with a bookie betting, but but you would pay 6.5% on your winnings, right? Now, you, you, know, you, you pay nothing. Everything else we do, I'm breathing now. I'm sure that's being taxed in some shape or form, right? Uh, you know, I had a little cup of coffee a minute ago. What tax am I paying on that, right? Uh, there is nothing in the world that we do that isn't taxed in some absurd sort of way. And yet this extremely dangerous activity is carrying on blithely. Uh, and like, I'm quite sure it's the Wild West. Like, you know, in, in 20 years time, they will look back on this and it'll be like looking back on, you know, when doctors were advertising cigarettes and things like this. It'll be seen as as crazy as that. You know, you mean uh, when you were betting online, if you wanted to have a fiver on, you just had a fiver, you know. Yeah. And so I, I that's think, one example. I think Michael Noonan did try to put on some 1% tax. They're on talking the ra- yeah. about these, but yeah. like, even the figures, 1%. Yeah. Like in, 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 an, in a world before Charlie McCreevy, it was 20%. Well, Sharon Byrne from the Irish Bookmakers Association is on the line. Sharon, firstly, would you just mind distinguishing who your members are and then the other kinds of gambling? Because there are casinos and these gaming machines and card clubs and that. So who do you represent, just to be clear? Hi, Sarah. Um, the Irish Bookmakers Association predominantly represents betting shops. And that's what we were set up to do about eight years ago. But like Declan said, technology has flown ahead with everybody and a lot of our members have online sites as well. So I suppose we represent most of the Irish betting shops, except for Paddy Power. Paddy Power are outside of our organisation. But um, Boyle Sports, Labbrooks, Brisbane, and Tullys, all those big names that you'd recognise are in our association. Now, the Department of Justice did have prepared um, a gambling regulation bill of sorts, which was going to bring in sweeping changes, and it, it never saw the light of day. Now, did your organisation or did you have any contact or lobbying with the department about the contents of that bill and what you wanted to see or didn't want to see in the bill? Yes, yeah, yeah, Sarah, we worked closely with the department at the time and put in um, a submission and met with them several times because a lot of what is contained in the bill we had been calling for for years and introduced ourselves voluntarily, actually. Like like um, what? Give us an example. Well, for example, providing social responsibility services for our customers. So, And an issue I know Declan speaks very uh, regularly about is anybody that's affected by problem gambling. Um, our association has in place for about eight years now, seven years now, we have been funding a charity in Northern Ireland that provides a free phone service and uh, counselling in every county in the country for anybody that's affected by problem gambling or family that's affected by somebody in their family that's problem gambling. So we had introduced that and are funding it for about seven years now. We also developed it further. We have, um, we do training sessions several times a year where we bring, uh, it's open to the whole betting sector, even non-members of our association. And when Louis come down and they do training days, because, Sarah, it's not an easy thing for a person working in a betting shop to handle if you do come across somebody that has a problem gambling or they're, you know, they're very upset or they're agitated or whatever to, to 
to be able to confront them is not an easy thing and you would need to be trained and there are various levels of um, interactions with somebody like that so different members of staff will be trained at those different levels. Yeah, Oshin McConville who was talking earlier, he did observe that that um, uh, training was taking place but that it would be an enormously difficult thing especially for a young member of staff to actually intervene. It would be it would be quite nerve-wracking for them. Well, in in that situation, we wouldn't recommend a young person get involved. They would at all times be advised to speak to their manager or their owner for the smaller chains that don't have a social responsibility department. Right, but Sharon, is the yeah. fundamental problem that bookmaking is a business that depends on your customers losing money? Otherwise, it just wouldn't work. Well, it, it depends on us setting the margin so that we make money out of the bets that we take in. So, yes, it is a commercial business there and bookmakers would try to make money, of course. And then I saw another figure that said that, to be fair, it's only around 1% of gamblers actually have a serious problem. But those gamblers account for one third of, um, of the gambling company's revenue. So you actually need those problem gamblers. Well, that one third is incorrect. Uh, the, the 1%, it's actually, Sarah, the, the most uh, comprehensive report done was a, the prevalence study in the UK, and they do that every couple of years, an independent report. And they said, the last one said the problem gambling rate in the UK was 0.06%. Mm. And a point that Declan made there a little while ago, actually, um, regarding the UK shops, for example, where that is where the prevalence report was done, like over 60% of the business done inside a betting shop in the UK is done on machine. And the machines you refer to are fob tees there. And the reason why they're not here, Sarah, is because they're half slot, half betting, the machine itself. So um, that that type of business is very different to the business that's in an Irish betting shop. Yeah. So, Sharon, what regulation is there in Ireland at the moment about stuff like that? OK, well, firstly, about the money laundering that Declan raises there, the fourth directive is coming at us like a ton of bricks from Europe and for the first time ever is bringing the betting sector in under its wing here in Ireland. So we've been working very closely with the Gardaí and the Department of Finance for about two years now. We've developed codes of practice, uh, reporting uh, processes, all of that is in place now in our shops. We've online training in place. So that actually has changed. Declan, you may not be aware, in the last, say, six months, it's become very involved and very active. Finally, Sharon, just want to go back quickly to that gambling regulation bill. Sure. Were there items in that bill that you opposed? Um, no, no, Sarah, there was nothing that I opposed, but it was um, the difficulty I have with the bill, and I think the same with the department. It's so broad. It's try like our legislation dates back to 1931. The Betting Act is 1931, and the Gaming and Lotteries Act is 1956. And it's also, so it's covering all of that, and it's also trying to cover the online world, which is endless. It's, it's like the universe. It's every time they try to cover something, it's gone. So the problem with the bill is that it's so broad and so wide, there were a lot of work needed to be done on some of the heads. But I absolutely welcomed, they have parts in there that they're recommending that people must pay to a, into the fund for problem gambling. To date, to today, the only ones paying into that are the betting shops. Now, the arcades have started to pay in and uh, we welcome their funding, but this bill will make anybody providing any type of a gambling service contribute to the fund and conform 
to codes of practice which we have already introduced and hopefully will continue to develop and strengthen. Okay, Sharon Byrne, thanks a million for joining us this morning. Appreciate that. And we'll take a break now and we'll be back with Willie Collins, a gambling addiction counsellor. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about gambling this morning and in studio with me is Declan Lynch, columnist with the Sunday Independent and author of Free Money. And also with me is Willie Collins. He is a former director of the Asheri Care uh, Centre and he's currently involved with Wharton House. He's a gambling addiction uh, counsellor. Willie, why can so many people moderate and control their gambling and some people just can't do it and it spirals into this crazy, crazy out of control situation? Well, it's uh, it's a bit like any any other addiction, you know. Um, people don't don't drink uh, to excess because they like the taste of it, you know, or they don't take drugs because <laughs> they they like the taste of them. They they do it for for an effect, and they also gamble for an effect. So why do people why do people gambling uh, gamble? Well, Oshin said, you know, that he put on a face, you know, to the public, but yet what's going on in, the, in under the surface is quite different, and. Um, so people people gamble to change the way they feel. It's a very acceptable type of a, of a condition. What's frightened everybody is the move online. That mm-hmm. now you no longer have to go into the bookie's office and be there no. where everybody would see you. Do you think the problem is escalating? Absolutely. Well, it's, people can gamble now 24-7. You know, at one time the bookie's office was closed, but they're open later now. But also online, people can, can stay up all night and they're online, and it's so easy to open an account. You know that they that they can put money into into it. And I've known people to go through ten grand in a weekend to all intents and purposes. They're normal people doing normal jobs. You know, but they're they're at this this online stuff at night. I'm always hearing about men. Mm-hmm. Is it a highly gendered activity? Predominantly men. But and why do you think some, that is? I suppose traditionally it was. You know, uh, people had an interest in in, in sport. Men were I suppose traditionally more interest in sport and interest in horses and so on, and it seems to have. But you do find quite a number of women that are are gambling online now and drinking a glass of wine as well at the same time. Now we were talking to Oshin McConville, and in a minute we'll be listening to John O'Sullivan, who's a recreational yeah. gambler. And what struck me about both of them was how young they started. Right. They were teenagers yes. when they both started gambling. Is that common? I think so. Uh, I remember, you know, uh, years ago. Uh, Guys that went to school with me in secondary school, and and uh, that they would be gambling, going to the bookies' office, you know, during at lunchtime and so on, and that still goes on, quite a number. See, there's, there's, I suppose, young people are interested in sport and they're interested in horses and they like to do things maybe with their parents or they like to do, you know, get get involved. And of course, there's a buzz. What, uh, there's a theory I'm sure you've heard of the endorphin theory around gambling that is, it says, the purest of a chemical addiction that. Uh, when the place a bet, it releases endorphin in the system, and people become addicted to to it's a bit like adrenaline, you know, the, the sort of rush, and uh, people uh, actually feel some withdrawal, you know, when the when the level drops in the system, and they have measured it in in, in people's system, and, and it's shown that when the place a bet, that is it as hard to get off gambling as it is off drugs? I think it's. It's really difficult. The one one thing that I find uh, for for people who address their gambling problem is that, uh, particularly those that are in a major hole, you know, financially, and it isn't always like the financial, but they've they've dug a big hole for themselves generally financially, and uh, 
to get past the point where they where they say I'm not going to solve my problem with a big with a big bet, you know, with one big bet, because people that have alcohol problems or drug problems, they don't think they're going to solve their problem by drinking more, you know, when they mm. when they when they identify it. But uh, like I've known people like that have been in debt up to half a million, you know, through. Uh, you know, borrowing on their house and borrowing mortgage, you know, remortgaging it and relationships being in real trouble and so on. And they think, oh, if I could, you know, if I could get that big hit, you know, that, mm. that I was expecting all my life, yeah. I could solve my problem. That, that is probably yeah. one of the unique things yeah. about about gambling as an addiction that, you know, you, you, you can actually, in theory, uh, get out of the hole using the same shovel that uh, you dug it with, you know, and that in, in no other uh, addiction is that the case. Uh, this thing as well about the your, the individual sort of um, uh, you know your, it involves your own ego and your own personality in a way much different to other drugs. You know you're not taking something from outside. It's it, it's coming from yourself, and it's your sense of being right about things. I think for, well, that's why that's a lot of reason yeah. that men like it. That mm-hmm. it's about being vindicated and having your judgments uh, validated. Yes. And you know I was right, and ultimately it's kind of playing God. You know, mm. it's, uh, you know, seeing the future. Uh, apparently, Islam finds gambling the worst of all things. Right? <laughs> Islam is against many things. As yeah. we know, but uh, gambling, it has identified among all the vices as, as such, uh, it considers gambling to, to be you know, the, the most lethal one, probably for this reason, that, that it, it involves the person... Uh, you know, taking the role of of God and and having the arrogance to predict the future, even if it's only at the two thirty at Haydock Park. You know. um, Willie, I've often heard it said that in well, certainly in financial terms, gambling is worse than alcohol because there's only so much you can drink yes. before you either pass out or it kills you. But gambling can just never end. I think it's also associated with self harm, and you know, people end their own lives when they when they're in such a. Um, you know, state having lost everything, and like people have lost their houses, lost their jobs. You know, they've uh, got their money mixed up with the bosses. You know, very, very easily, people embezzle money, and we've had some, you know, high-profile cases of that, uh, where people have, you know, been involved in, in organisations and companies where they're gambling and they've taken thousands, hundreds of thousands, and uh, I suppose it is. Um, it's one of the. I, I would think that it's it's a more difficult difficult addiction to to treat, simply because the families first of all don't know that much about it until you know there's no smell of your breath when you come in after gambling. So like a lot of partners and uh, would not be aware of the level of debt that uh, that had been accrued. You know, I remember one one particular guy, uh, his wife thought that that eight thousand at uh, this number of years ago. She thought that eight thousand in the bank. And in actual fact, when I asked him to list out where he was at that time, he was sixty-three thousand in debt, and he had borrowed four times from four different banks to build a garage at the side of the house. Right. So, so you know that type of thing, and he had gambled it all. And Declan, do you notice this thing, or is it just me? And it was particularly during the election of the introduction of odds as part of the the political analysis. That really struck me. Of course, you see, and in in fairness to the bookies, right, we are in uh, a world where... Uh, everything is gambling. It's 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 gambling is the great sort of belief system of our age. Wall Street, all these guys, everything is a gamble. You know, we're asked. I remember when Nama was set up, right? And uh, the minister at the time said, "Well, it's a gamble." Yeah. Which essentially means that Ireland was, as such, was being put on the proverbial two thirty 
at, at Kempton, right? And it, we, we live in this in, in a world inundated with the whole concept of gambling, a complete acceptance that, you know, you know Wall Street uh, runs the world and that's... Uh, those guys are gambling. They're online gambling. What about right? the National Lottery? Do you know what I mean? Do you think that should exist? No, I mean, or? that's a relatively, you know, uh, yeah. harmless sort of thing. I've, I've, uh, I've come across a few people that were addicted to buying lottery tickets and I remember one day I gave a guy uh, a lift in the car and uh, I said to him, are you going shopping? You know, I knew him to see him and he said uh, no I'm actually going in to buy lottery tickets and I said do they not sell lottery tickets at the local shop and he said oh they do but I'm barred and I said How, why are you barred he said I'm not allowed to buy lottery tickets there because he was on social welfare and he was spending all of his money buying lottery tickets in the local shop and they're, they're barred from, from buying lottery tickets which is quite strange one thing Sarah that we don't have any any official response you know to treatment of, of uh, addiction uh, like if you have your health insurance and you go to treatment for purely for addiction, uh, it's questionable whether it will be covered or not. The the health service do- doesn't have any treatment services for 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 gambling. Uh, all Whereas of, they would for alcohol, presumably. Alcohol and drugs, yeah. Right. Alcohol and drug policy, even strategies, substance misuse strategies, all that. But there's no strategy from the government in relation to gambling. And the only yep. one that's covering it, the only one that's providing services are the voluntary voluntary sector and the privates. And uh, unfortunately, th- that, uh, you know, when, when, when I'm listening to the lady from the, from the bookmakers, uh, I'm not aware, and I'm in the business a long time, I'm not aware of anybody that has been paid for uh, in treatment by the, by the industry. And I think that maybe, you know, if they're putting a tax on it, that some of that money should be ring-fenced, if, as they say, you know, to provide treatment for people that are suicidal oftentimes and can't afford to go to treatment. Okay, well, just to represent the fact that most people do enjoy gambling, you know, for fun and recreationally, I talked a little earlier to John O'Sullivan. He's a writes for Culture for the Sunday Times, and I asked him to tell me about the first time he gambled. My father was stationed in the Curragh, and sometime in the 50s, my mother took me across to the Irish Derby, which has been run um, in the Curragh, as it always is, and um, she was from Cashel. So Vincent O'Brien had a horse on the race called Chamier. And um, she put a bet a shilling each way for me. And Chamier didn't actually win. He came second. But there was it was a cause celeb at the time. There was a, The English horse that won was disqualified. And Chamier, Chamier was placed first. So I won nine or ten shillings as a result. And um, I can remember um, being a pious little prick at the time. I... Uh, bought with my nine or ten shillings a statue of the Sacred Heart and a statue of the Blessed Virgin, which were arranged in my mantelpiece for about the next 15 or 20 years, you know. Uh, so that's got, that got me started. Now, tell me about your gambling life now. How do you manage it? I bet mainly now on horses, uh, occasionally rugby, occasionally golf. They'd be my, my three main activities. And do you go into a bookie's office or do you do it all online? No, no. Occasionally go in early in the morning to look at odds or things like that. But I would never spend time in a bookie shop ever. It's a, a point of honour, in fact. I bet online. And how do you control I, it? I control it, basically. I have, uh, like, for the last three or four years, I didn't actually spend a halfpenny in gambling because I accumulated a, a pot of about five or 6,000 and I used that to play with. Occasionally going into Paddy Powers with my cash card and withdrawing 500 quid. Now, you know, the wheel always turns, you know, you always go through losing phases. So gradually that depleted. 
So I did two things, you know. I I basically cut my bets in half and then I stopped for a period of, I'd say, about two or three months. And then I started off again meekly. And I'm up now, I think, as something about 1,800 in the pot at the moment. But anybody I know who makes money or who doesn't lose a lot of money, and by the way, most people, it's the, the, the latter is true, they don't lose a lot of money, have some control mechanism. You know? Surveys have been done that said people who gamble moderately have an elevated level of happiness. Now, what does it do for you when you're gambling? Like if you're watching a horse race or watching, a, say, the rugby match, because you'd probably watch some rugby matches anyway because you're interested. What is the qualitative difference in watching a rugby match when you have a bet on and you don't have a bet on? It's intensity. It's absolute intensity. One of the biggest bets I ever had in my life was Claire to beat Tipperary in a, a Munster hurling quarterfinal. And I'm a rabid supporter of Tipperary hurling, but I just thought this particular year Claire had to win that match. So, you know, I was delighted with the substantial win, but at the same time regretted the, uh, you know, the state of tip hurling. You know? I think a psychoanalyst would have great fun wondering why you would do something like that. Well, it, it's, it's <laughs> the old, you know, you know that, that, that Nietzsche saying that which is done out of love takes place beyond good and evil, you know. The same is true of gambling, basically. It, it exists in a, in a realm of its own. And that was John O'Sullivan telling us about his gambling life. And I suppose, Willie, that's an example which sounds very managed and controlled. Yeah. So do you want to judge yeah. him there? Is he OK or is he on a slippery slope? <laughs> you see, I think that how you measure a person, whether, whether gambling is a problem or not, is if if you if if you've lots of control over over how much and when you when you attend and also how it's affecting other areas of your life and it's the same with any addiction you know like some people would say about drinkers you know you can be a heavy drinker and it may not impact on your life uh, negatively and then you may not be that heavy drinker it might impact very much so and the same with gambling like he seems from from listening to John he seems to enjoy it uh, rather than endure it <laughs> OK, well, look, I have to take another quick break. And when I come back, we'll be hearing from Brian Carey, the business editor with The Sunday Times, about the size of the Paddy Power business, which is awesome, to use the American phrase. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about gambling this morning. And in studio with me is Declan Lynch, columnist with The Sunday Independent and author of Free Money, and Willie Collins, who's a gambling addiction counsellor. Now, we've been referencing Paddy Power a lot. And earlier I spoke to Brian Carey, he's business editor with The Sunday Times, and I asked him to tell me about the sheer size of the Paddy Power business. But Paddy Power's story begins back in, in, in the late 1980s. And it was very successful, pretty much from, from the off. Uh, and uh, it floated on the stock market. And I suppose over, over a period of time, the, the key to the, the Paddy Power uh, story was really noticing that, that bookmaking was going to move online. And uh, they did that very successfully, launched paddypower.com, which became quite successful in the UK. They became particularly successful uh, when betting then started moving on to mobiles and the Paddy Power app was streets ahead of, of other bookmakers. So they became very, very innovative very technically savvy and also very, very marketing savvy. So how much is it worth? How much are the owners worth? How's the share price been doing? It's, uh, I suppose, a defining, another defining moment for, for the company came last year when it decided to merge with Betfair. And Betfair is, is very much a, 
online bookmaking. It's actually a betting exchange. It's an interesting business and in it allows two people in different parts of the world to actually bet against each other. And uh, so, so it's kind of like an eBay for it, it betting. It is like an eBay for betting, exactly. Yeah. They also do traditional online bookmaking, but that technology is, is that betting exchange technology is very, very important as well in terms for bookmakers. So bookmakers in different parts of the world would actually use the exchanges to find a price and to, to actually track uh, movements and prices. So that was quite quite a, a, a big step, step for them to do that. And as a result of that merger and also the continued growth of both businesses, uh, Paddy Power Betfair at the moment has a market valuation of about 10 billion euro. That's huge. Which is extraordinary when you consider where the, where the businesses come from. It's going to be on the FTSE 100, which is the top uh, 100 uh, listed companies in London. It would have a higher market cap, would be higher on that list than, say, Marks and Spencers, for example. Now, regulation. So, as far as I know, in the UK, there's a thing called a gambling commission who oversee this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But we don't, as far as I know, have anything in Ireland. No. And there was a bill proposed to go through. Alan Shatter was trying mm. to get it through and it fell. Now, what was supposed to be in that, do you know? And well, it was why quite detailed, it yeah. It, it, it covered more than just uh, bookmaking and betting. It also uh, covered slot machines, amusement arcades, and basically all forms of gambling. And within that, there was a provision for the establishment of the Office of Gambling Control, uh, which was going to be funded by the industry. And like all these offices, the we were spared the row because it hasn't been hasn't been set up yet, but like there was going, obviously going to be allowed as a row as to who should be funding it and how much, but it was going to be funded by the industry, not by uh, by the taxpayer. Um, but it 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 proposed quite sweeping powers, certainly in the licensing and uh, enforcement, uh, which would have been a big issue with regard to uh, to people uh, overstepping stepping their bounds, and also in areas like advertising, which uh, another. Big number which comes out of Petty Power uh, Betfair is that every year, or certainly last year, the two businesses combined spent two hundred thirty million euro on mar- marketing, wow. which is a, an absolutely f- a phenomenal number. So, just finally on that, in Ireland, is there a conflict of interest, or is it something that politicians are taking into account? that attempts to regulate gambling might impact on the horse racing industry, which would be seen as quite important to Ireland's economy. Horse racing in particular directly benefits from from betting because the betting tax that's collected in in the shops and now is being collected by online punters, regardless of what sport they're punting on, they could be punting on the election, but a portion of that will go towards the funding of racing and and the funding of racecourses. So certainly... Previous ministers for finance, who may have been based in Kildare, for example, (laughs) may have been seen to have been quite positively disposed towards the racing industry. In terms of how politically sensitive it is, I I think it is. I think if if there was uh, moves to curb betting... I think it, it it probably would. There's a lot of people involved in racing who are who are politically well connected. Frank Harry, thank you very much. So Declan, the fact that really struck me there was these guys are bigger than Marks and Spencers. That says so much about the scale of this business, yeah, doesn't they're, it? Yeah, they're bigger than Jesus Christ. You know, uh, they a, a few years ago, uh, I remember thinking on a global scale, like I, I wrote in the book Free Money that the two great global phenomena of our time are radical Islam and online gambling. Uh, you know, if anything, online gambling has now out, outstripped it, right? 
the uh, the size of the thing is is astronomical. So many of the things about online gambling are kind of mind boggling. Uh, going back, the very first moment I saw a, a website, an online gambling website, you know, uh, I. I was in awe at the poss- the terrible possibilities inherent therein, right? But in relation to say things like treatment and, and what do you do about this, right? Or how do you fix the, this this stuff, right? One thing that corporate bookies could do, given their vast profits and their the huge size that, that of them now, right? They could you know set aside a small amount of their um, their astonishing profits for treatment, right? Mm. Uh, even on the without knowing the exact figures, right? They they keep putting out this number of one percent, right? I would argue that that is completely irrelevant anymore. It it belongs to some world that doesn't exist anymore because online gambling is like a new addiction, right? And has to be. We don't know yet what the casualties are, but it is like if we, if in the middle of a very long war, somebody introduces a completely devastating new weapon, right? Like say inventing the machine gun or the in, nuclear bomb in the yeah, yeah in the middle of a sword fight or something, right? So we we have no idea of the scale of this thing yet in terms of of addiction, in terms of the casualties. We just know that every week, more or less, we're reading in the paper about some guy who embezzled loads of funds from the company he runs in and is now you know getting a suspended sentence or whatever, right? But uh, until uh, we have better figures on it, the least probably that, and, and you know, they might actually gain some kudos for this as well, the, the bookies, that they could actually, you know, put a bit, little bit more in the proverbial poor box. In relation yeah. to uh, percentages, you know, uh, this is kind of back of the envelope type of calculation, but they say about 10% of people, you know, have an alcohol problem and that w- will need treatment at some time. And uh, I suppose uh, when I started this this type of work, you know, many years ago, we'd see maybe one out of 10, you know, or that have come into treatment. Now you'd see about 30% of people, you know. So I, I would say that, that uh, from our experience would be back of the envelope sort of calculation yeah. would be that it's much higher than 1% of people that have a gambling problem. I think it's more like 30% of the people that come to us and quite a number of people come to us with alcohol problems, Right. But when you explore a bit more, you find that maybe their primary addiction is gambling, but they didn't tell you about it because it isn't obvious to the family. But could the increase in numbers that you see simply be due to the growth of the industry that more people are doing it? Yeah. So it's still the 1%, but it's just... It's it's also much more acceptable, you know, like people that weren't hanging around the bookies' offices, like accountants and people like that. You know, that maybe That's the difference no. that online brings, yes. isn't it? Yes. That it's it's really white collar. But as well as that, to, along with that, like if you're in a bookie's office and you're losing money, at least you have other people that are losing money, with, you know, with you. But if you're inside in your, your bedroom on a computer and you're losing a lot of money, you know, a lot of suicidal thoughts come into people's heads. And I always ask people about their suicidal ideation and it's very, very high mm. among people that have gambling problems that they think this is the way out. There's no way out. And then they think this is the way out. And that's a very serious situation. I mentioned before, you know, casual media references all the time. Do you think there's an onus on people in the media to stop giving free advertising to gambling? Or is that being a bit nanny status? Well, it's it's very... It's, it's, you see, things become very acceptable. You know, it's almost like, uh, you know, when it's coming to, uh, say, like St. Patrick's Day, you know, that 
that everybody's saying we're going out for a few scoops, you know, mm. and we're going for a few pints and we're doing like that sort of thing. And Cheltenham is kind of in the buzz this week, you know, because and it's so acceptable to be down in the bookie's office. Like people take their holidays at this time to not, not to go to Cheltenham, but to be down in the bookie's office for the week. Yeah, they do. <laughs> I just yeah, don't think Declan. they understand it. I don't, they don't get it, right? Oh. Like uh, addiction is a difficult thing to, to understand. It really is quite a, like, you know, people who, who don't understand, they just don't, right? They, they have no conception of it, right? So when people are talking about al- alcohol in a way that, in an ignorant way like that, you know, they, that's, the, the way it is that they, there's some sort of familiarity you have to have with it before you understand right, it. Right, but know. if so, in approaching regulation, therefore, what do you do if this is something like alcohol that the vast amount of people can enjoy, um, but there's a small number of people who don't? Why should you restrict and regulate and stop the majority from enjoying it? Oh, you're not r- r- stopping it. Well, anyone. in terms of regulation, I, I what don't approach want gambling to be, to be banned or anything like that. So, what I, do I, you I, want? I, quite, quite the contrary. Yeah. I think that those things are always in, destructive and stupid. Uh, but there, uh, there are some such such basic things can be done. First of all, a, a huge uh, raising of awareness about the issue of addiction is is essential. Right uh, or a, just a catastrophe will be will be upon us. Right, there's no question of that. I mean, there are loads of personal disasters going on around this as we speak. Right, and just such basic issues like like say betting tax being sort of put at a realistic level. You know, why would that be regarded as as nanny statish or uh, you know radical or anything? You know, that's just the most normal thing in the world, uh, and it it shows you how. How far we've gone with this thing that people regard? Oh, you, you'd have you betting tax. Is that not a bit draconian? You know, we pay we who pay so much tax on everything, and we regard we regard tax on betting as as being draconian. It's no. I mean, of course, it's such a basic thing. Willie, I just want to put the last question to you. I, I, sometimes I get frustrated when people are full of advice for people with a problem, mm-hmm. be it alcohol or gambling or depression or whatever, because they're obviously stuck in a rut and necessarily can't help themselves. What advice do you give to somebody who's a family member or a friend of someone who has a gambling problem? How do they intervene effectively? Pick, pick up the phone and talk talk to somebody in a, in a treatment facility right. because there are treatment facilities that will give family family guidance on how to how to address it. And it isn't to blame the person or to criticise the person, but to offer you know to say that you're concerned about about somebody who has who has a problem and that you'd like them to talk to somebody because like. The solution is fairly straightforward if, if if people acknowledge that the problem is there and that's the expertise that counsellors would have in, in a centre to help help somebody to, to identify whether it's whether it's a social uh, gambling or whether it's it's an addiction. And okay, so pick up the phone. Yeah. Okay, Willie Collins, Declan Lynch, many thanks for joining me this morning and thanks to all our guests. Um, Aoife Breen produced, Bobby Kerr is up next and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.